I'm Hugh Broom. A very warm welcome to this Farmers Weekly Transition podcast, which is going to discuss how you stress test your farm business, measuring how vulnerable you are to changes in interest rates, market price fluctuations, inflation and rising input costs could make a big difference between success and failure. And we will explore how all these factors influence your farm's working capital, what changes should be implemented to make your farm more resilient, financial modelling, why, how should you do it, and how are your gearing rates, borrowing, assets and liabilities affecting your business. So uh, we have got lots to cover. We have got a uh, an esteemed panel of four to introduce to you as well. First, we have Will Foyle, who's a farm business consultant with Hutchinson's. We also have uh, Jeff Clayden, uh, who's the CEO of Clayden Drills. Tim Mason joins us from the Environment Bank, working with farmers and landowners to ensure delivery of strategically located habitat banks. And last but not least, we have Tim Coates, who is the co-founder and chief customer and regulatory officer at the Oxbury Bank, where he leads on strategic and product development and holds the prescribed responsibility for managing climate-related financial risks. Welcome. Welcome to all our panel members this evening. But without further ado, let's get on. We've had um, various questions submitted. Um, The first one I'm going to ask, and it's a pretty generic one, but I think it's one that a lot of farmers think about all the time. How big should my overdraft be? And without further ado, I'll throw that straight to the to, to, to Tim, to the banker in the room. What? How big should that be, Tim? What? What should be the rule? Is there a rule of thumb, or is it totally dependent on the type of business? It, it is going to depend on the type of business, but I think what you the, the question is probably best looked at by going back a step and saying, actually, what should my working capital requirement be for my business, right? And um, and the, the the best way of looking at that is to think about what's called the current ratio, uh, which essentially is just your current assets divided by your current liabilities. So essentially, what are you going to be able to generate income from in the next 12 months divided by what it's going to cost you over the next 12 months? You could put that another another way. If it's at the end of harvest and you've got a full shed, um, what's the you know what what am I going to get out of that? And what's going to cost me to replace that value? Uh, of that stock over the coming year so that that kind of conceptual thing so if you do that division and you get a number that's sort of you know about one you're probably in about the right place you shouldn't be going forwards or backwards too far uh ideally you want it nicely above one but probably not as high as two if you're going up to two you're probably not actually putting enough energy into pushing the business forward if you're below one you're probably you know holding too much cost and that could include financial costs so your so your overdraft would be would be in your current liabilities so that starts to tell you if it's if it's in there, you know, uh, you've you've got an idea of, of whether it's too big or too small based on that calculation, which is going to be applicable to your business, whatever you're doing. Um, there are other rules of thumb out there. Um, some people often talk about sort of about fifty percent of your total revenues running any given year. Um, it's going to depend on exactly what business you're doing, how diversified you are, uh, how seasonal your cash flow is within the year. Um, but typically, you know, really, it's about you know, can you ensure that you can uh, afford it going forward? Because you know, it's many many overdrive, uh, overdrafts, of course, are going up at present, as well as uh, costs going up as well. So it's an additional cost that's going up. So it has to be considered all in the round. Um, but it's often something that's it's a good thing to to investigate um, whether or not you've got it sort of set at the right level, um, whether you can afford it, um, and then if it's appropriate to your particular type of farm business. And and would you say there's any rules of thumb around sort of gearing? Because I mean, traditionally, you know, farmers particular okay, it doesn't apply to everyone, but owner-occupier farmers would look at, you know, we've got we own this much asset and we're borrowing this against it, and it's only, you know, five percent of our total wealth, yeah. we're fine. But that can obviously lead to some but it's not very revealing in some cases because you could be fine and only five percent but massively unprofitable yeah exactly i mean that's exactly and it's, it's, it's easy that you know that your your overdraft and your gearing ratio are not related particularly except that your overdraft making up a, probably a component part of how geared you are your gearing essentially is just the amount of debt you carry as a business uh compared to your total asset value or equity value of the business whereas your, your overdraft is, is essentially is a, is a 12-month snapshot it should always be coming back to your 12 months uh, for your overdraft and, and your gearing is is your long term long term look, um, and you're quite right. Owner occupiers on large land may have a ratio that's that's much lower than you'd expect in uh, compared to other other farming businesses or compared to to any businesses actually in the wider economy, um, which is just a function of high land values. And as you say, doesn't mean that you're actually in a very good cash position, nor does it mean that you're 
that you might not end up having to make some pretty uncomfortable choices if you do just find that you're actually losing money year on year. Uh, Jeff, you've been farming 53 harvests now. What's your what's your view on borrowing? And, and, and you know, as a farmer, how do you think about borrowing? Yes, um, we've we've been borrowing money most of my farming career. Um, I remember coming home and father not being particularly well, and we were well borrowed back then, probably about hundred thousand in nineteen seventy on two hundred and fifty acres, which um, would be pretty high geared because I mean land then was about I don't know four hundred pounds an acre. Um, unlike today and uh, so I think my father being ill we were very lucky because the bank manager didn't didn't make us sell some land to pay the um, overdraft off and uh, we then went into the early 70s and um, they joined the EU and wheat prices doubled and we were suddenly um, bailed out by the prices coming forward so as a young man I learned very quickly that um we had to try and make sure that we're as efficient as we possibly could and grow as much as we could, as cheap as we possibly could. Um, we then sort of bought more land in 86 and uh, we managed to fix the interest rate, which is going to be an interesting one for everybody because, it, you know, it, the borrowing you, that you have is is one thing, but it's the amount of interest you're paying and whether you can actually afford that. And uh, I remember it's terrifying in 1986 because most, most of the bank interest then was anywhere around about 12% or 10%. We fixed the, the value of that land. We bought 120 acres and we fixed it at 12%. Unfortunately, we did because shortly after that, that went up to 18%. And uh, that would have probably been unmanageable back, back then. So I think, you know, when you're borrowing money, you need to – Look at um, your interest rates and, and the risk of whether they're going to go up. I mean, we're record low interest rates at the moment. And uh, I guess that land, you know, around about £10,000 an acre virtually equates to the same as um, land at £1,000 an acre at 10%. So when you look at that, um, you can see that land values today, um, the interest is, is not so different. But if, if, um, interest rates continue to be pushed up, you know, that could actually get very tight for some businesses if they're, if they're borrowing quite a lot of money. Um, so really, you have to do your sums, know what your costs are very much so, and, and look at that and keep it fairly simple. And um, hopefully, you know, we, we will get through this storm, particularly with the volatile prices we have at the moment. Absolutely. And I mean, it's a given, isn't it? You need to know the detail. You need to know the costs um, if you're actually going to make a plan. Tom, you're out and about and you're trying to get farmers engaged in environmental schemes, whatever that may be within the, within the envelope of the land that they're managing, renting, farming, owning, whatever. And I mean, do you see, I mean, this is, you know, we talk about overdrafts, we talk about borrowing, the sort of long-term arrangements you might be able to buddy farmers up with could potentially help reduce that over time. Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, and you know, a lot, a lot of the farmers that we're seeing um, out and about, of course, one of their biggest concerns at the moment is this kind of volatility and uncertainty in the market. And I think what what does attract them to something we are or the the product that we're offering is um, that you know it will provide some long term certainty over you know x number of hectares potentially of their holding, um, which they know what's going to be, you know, what they're going to expect over, you know, a 30 year agreement. And um, like you say, uh, remove some of that volatility um, and some of that uncertainty, but by also, you know, hopefully providing a good injection of, of cash for them within, you know, into their farming business. That's brilliant. I'm going to move on to the next question um, because I'm going to give that straight to Will, um, which is we're talking about you know, stress testing and resilience of your business. How useful, this question uh, is one of the ones that's been set in, how useful is working out my cost of production as a management tool? Uh, Will, is cost of production, is it the be-all and end-all when you're working out your overall numbers and your strategy going forward? I wouldn't say it's the absolute be-all and end-all, Hugh, but I think it is a fundamental, um, very important part of an arsenal of tools that you should be using. Um, I often say to people, the trouble of analysing your farm accounts is you're looking historically. In the best way, you're looking 12 months backwards. 
uh, and we only have to look at the last 12 months and the volatility within the market to appreciate that looking 12 months back at my farm accounts, probably, you know, there, there's something else I could be doing. Uh, and cost of production is there and it's live. Um, certain costs are easier to understand. Um, your variable costs, you're, you're quite regularly getting an invoice through the post. You know what they are. Um, other costs are more hidden. Um, oh, actually did some cost production analysis only earlier in the week for something else. Without changing variable costs, uh, purely changes in yield and direct costs, we could see um, cost production from wheat varying from 150 through to nearly £200 a tonne. Uh, and that's pre-rent and finance. So you need to understand where that is before you can start making other decisions on um, the management of, of those crops that you're growing. You know your cost of production. You can set a strike price. You can choose how, when, and what quantities you're selling product. Um, and it's it's part of an overall risk management tool, I suppose, yeah. And, and and Tim Coates, to you, I mean, in terms of uh, uh, of talking at cost of production and working out the numbers, what do you say to your clients when it comes to benchmarking? Because, you know, Will, you just said there's a there's a, a fair bit of variance between top and bottom end and in terms of cost of production a week. Where should I be going to benchmark what I'm doing? Where, where's the best tool? Do you think? I'm not necessarily going to recommend a best single best tool because that's probably not appropriate. But there are obviously tools out there. Um, HDB has obviously got a, a, a free and publicised. Well, I say free. We've we've paid for it. Some of us uh, to, to 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 have that there. But they they've obviously doing a lot of work on that, which is which is I say is a very good first port of call. Um, and actually, it's probably worth signposting the the, the DEFRA funded uh, you know farming. Uh, business resilience fund at the moment uh there's a number of um providers out there who are, who are offering a you know free free consultation on this which includes benchmarking as part of that so that service from from many of those providers which you know is, is incredibly useful incredibly valuable i've you know i've been through it myself uh with a provider who i won't name uh but there are, as i say because it's a, it's a it's a diverse market out there there's lots of good quality consultants uh, who can who can support on that and i would recommend it if you haven't taken it up already uh do so um, but interestingly, it's not just on the on the farm business side of things. There, um, you know, in terms of the financials, that increasingly starting to bring in other other factors of resilience, like environmental considerations as well. Um, that now, so the consultants offering advice on that. So, a top recommendation is to is to make sure that you've uh, taken taken part of that. Defra's paying for it, so um, let's let's make sure we're we're using it. Yeah, and and presumably you get regional variation, Jeff. When you're benchmarking, I mean, you when you look at your farm near Newmarket, clearly you're comparing with other farmers around Newmarket. Now, all you lot in East Anglia can generally look out to the rest of us and, and smugly look at your yields. But I mean, how how, do you, how have you always worked benchmarking and 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 the cost of production on your pro, uh, unit? We we obviously want to um, maintain as much yield as we can because um, uh, with the money coming in, and if we grow the crop as cheaply as we possibly can, but still maintain the yield and the quality, we're really starting to win. Um, I have a customer who uh, farms 1,200 hectares um, not far from here. He's just a father and son outfit, and he has one worker for three weeks at harvest time. And he runs a 10-metre combine, and a 30-metre self-pelt sprayer, and a 350-horsepower challenger, a 15-metre set of rolls and a Claydon drill. Um, his total fill usage for the whole farm this year, to, to from harvest from planting till harvest and harvesting, was only 40 litres a hectare. Now, you know, his costs are, are, are tremendously down, um, compared to a lot of other people. But the most important thing, his yields are up there at 10 tonnes a hectare. So you know, with, with low costs like that, with less labour and less machinery, he's, he's actually um, coming in. And the AHDB um, did the benchmarking, and we saw some results from them a couple of years ago. And these would be much higher today because of the machinery costs and, and diesel costs and labour costs. And the lowest was a, was obviously um, a, a direct drilling situation. It was one of our drills, strangely. And uh, he was £28 a hectare um, for his crop establishment. This is only the crop establishment. 
and the highest was 280 pounds a hectare. Now, when you look at that, they both yielded exactly the same yield at 10 tonnes a hectare, which was interesting. And anything else in between varied from seven and a half to eight and a half. And that was all AHDB figures. Um, so they came in. And I think, you know, it's absolutely crucial to make sure that you, you make the best of your job. You can, your timings and, and get the job right. And benchmarking is, is great. But I think earlier on in my career, I remember filling in uh, cash flows to my bank manager and then trying to farm to that cash flow. Uh, well, just be a wee bit careful. Don't go and cut things out that are actually going to you know, keep your yield there because you can cut it out too easily. And many years, um, well over 40 years of yield measuring, um, we've been able to work out which ones work well. And the ones that um, we can afford to cut out, and that's where we've arrived to today. So really important to monitor your business and uh, look at those costs that you're doing. And it doesn't matter. Like the egg producers at the moment, um, they're really in a hard place. The supermarkets are holding the price really hard, and they're probably spending 40% more to produce those eggs because cereal prices and all the costs around them have gone up. And uh, there's this massive pressure from the consumer not to let those prices go up. But we as farmers, we've just got to be very careful going forward because I think, you know, they could could really put a lot of pressure on us as an industry if they hold the prices too high, high or sorry, too too low. I think many people would say, yeah, I mean, many farmers would say probably that the last 30 years food has been far too cheap and uh, it's a hard, we, yeah, we've sort of come to the end of the road of 2% inflation every year uh, without having to worry about it. But that's a whole different debate. Um, I'm going to move on to another question now, again, talking about resilience, talking about future-proofing. What are the biggest steps I could take to future-proof my arable enterprise? Let's hit that one back to Will Will, what would your sort of top three, top four things be if you are, when you're sat down there trying to strip it out and lock down as much as you can to avoid this volatility? Um, I think measuring is is the first thing, Hugh. Uh, it's alarming the amount of businesses I go to that really don't have any sort of tools of, of measurement, shall we say. I know we've just used the word benchmarking, which is looking externally, but actually look internally at your business. Um, you know, Jeff created your monitoring systems back in the 80s, uh, and they are fantastic. But the amount of people I go to that stick that on a memory stick in the drawer and pull it out when they have a rainy day to remind themselves of better times um, is uh, quite astronomical. But if that is your fundamental base data, and if you start to understand other things, cost of production being one, and the relationship between yield, your direct cost, your fixed costs, you can then start to use that as a tool to manage for the future. So um, we, I then go into I, I, a phrase I call improve or remove. Um, if I've got a yield map and I've got a cost structure, I can make a, a variable rate profit and loss map for that field. I can then start to assess the areas that are uh, not making me money, and that will be stark. I think a lot of people, uh, the average really does smooth out things more than you think. There's a lot of land out there that, you know, small percentages of land that really don't make money, and actually your good land makes you more money than you believe. Um, there are measures, there are ways to improve that, still crop it, look at different cropping scenarios, or you may fall into the, the remove sector where you start looking at short or long-term alternative uses for that land. So I suppose my three things, sorry, are measure, manage from that, and look at improve or remove. No, that, that's pretty good. Presumably, if you remove... Tom, you're the man to come in and come up with something novel to do with that land that you've taken out of production. I mean, there are there are things presumably you can do to uh, help your business going forward and improve your financial resilience. Yeah, certainly. I mean, and there's so many of the landowners that approach us, you know, they tend to obviously, we tend to go out and see them on farm and it's kind of that initial conversation of working out with them 
you know, where they they feel, you know, are areas on the farm that may not be performing, whether it be, you know, well, you know, we, we put we use all the same inputs across our arable land, but for some reason this 20 hectares here doesn't, you know, just doesn't doesn't perform the way the rest of the farm does. We don't get the same yields, whatever it may be. Um, you know, and for us to create our habitat banks, obviously those kind of that's that's ideal mm-hmm. from our position because we're not taking the most productive land out of food production. Um, but we're offering them an alternative land use that is UK is a long term land use change, but, uh, you know, an alternative land use that should hopefully, um, you know, bring in a good return for them over that 30 year period. And like you say, gives them some more resilience to potentially invest elsewhere in the business. Um, plenty of landowners we've spoken to um, already where we're kind of progressing towards putting putting together sites with them. And, you know, they're looking at actually well the capital that we're bringing in from this may let us go and do other diversification projects we haven't been able to do you know in the past few years because we haven't been able to secure the finance or we haven't wanted to increase our debt exposure um and you know that's we, we, we're kind of really we're really kind of glad to be able to be in a position to help landowners with that absolutely look we're going to take a break uh we'll be right back after this message from one of our commercial partners bayer Hi, I'm Max Daffon, and I'm here to talk to you about how you can make your transition to a more sustainable future easier with Bayer's digital farming tool, FieldView. You'll get access to the last five years' worth of historic satellite imagery through the FieldView platform, which when combined with farm-generated data, will help you make more informed decisions about future field management. FieldView's easy-to-understand visual display makes it simple to compare the impact of the changes you make like adjusting fertilizer applications according to crop requirements or testing different seed rates and crop protection programs. And the data you collect will also help you identify unproductive land which you could take out of production and put into agri-environmental schemes. To find out more about FieldView and how it can help you move to a more productive, profitable and sustainable future, search Bayer FieldView online or get in touch with me via the Bayer website. Thank you very much. Welcome back. Tim, from the banking perspective, what do you, I mean, what are your sort of mantras that you say to your customers, uh, your, your, your arable customers, indeed any of your farming customers in terms of trying to future-proof uh, what they're doing? Well, I would I would echo the point around good data and, and measurement, uh, and that internal piece that the Will was mentioning. But actually, this is, and this is not something I say with my banking hound, but but back at, back on the farm, the thing I've been sort of wrestling with uh, trying to answer on this is, what can I do with the things that I get for free? as it were. So let's talk about the, you know, the very valuable thing that falls out of the sky. Uh, you know, it's actually the most crucial thing in all of all of arable crop production is, is what's what's going on with your water holding capacity in your soils, right? So what can I do through my choices in terms of how I manage the arable business to maximize water retention throughout the season, particularly when we're talking about, you know, the kind of dry, dry springs and summers that we've had the past couple of years uh, and are likely to be forecast going into the future. So actually considering, you know, a, a range of options that could be could be in that around water holding capacity uh, is quite important. Um and actually onto that, you know, we are getting these these hotter, drier springs in summer as well. The, the sun is also that that's energy that's coming out of the sky again for free. So, you know, focusing on the ensuring everything's in the in the right best place to make advantage of that is is pretty crucial. Um, what with it, what with the other 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 choices being uh, things that aren't free and are, are increasing in price. So it's it's been a big focus for me for the past couple of years thinking about that side of the equation, the natural side of the equation, rather than. Um, uh, just just trying to, to to tinker around with my cost of production, as it were, which obviously is a is a big factor uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, you can go yeah, like you say. So it's the stuff that isn't fixing your this price or fixing that price, but yeah, as you say, it's the really simple stuff. Uh, as is as is as is generally the way. It's the simple stuff that's there. Jeff, the first thing you're going to tell us is that we need to buy one of your drills to future proof our arable enterprise. But before you do that, I mean. Again, thinking about direct drilling and, and what you've been doing for 20 years and developing the product you've developed, presumably it's partly about acquiring the right bit of kit to do the job, but it's also about transitioning your your system, your soil, to get it to where you want it. Yes, you're 100% right there, Hugh. I mean, so many people just go and buy a direct drill. Perhaps they get a grant on one and, yeah, we'll have a direct drill. We'll just go and buy the first one we can get hold of. Um you know, I, I'd strongly recommend that they um, pop round and find locally people who've got those drills before they buy one and, and have a look at how they're performing on that soil type because all the drills will perform on, on the right soil types. And uh, 
we've we've been really fortunate. We're seeming to be reliable and consistently um, getting those yields over the last 20 years. And as you're rightly saying, the soil, you need to look at your farm. I mean, those fields that are not performing that we've already mentioned, why are they not performing? Is it a fertility thing? Is it drainage? You know, it's looking at those things in those fields and trying to do a few soil tests, go check that drainage. If it's standing with water, you know, why is it standing with water? Is it because the drainage has failed or the ditches are not clean? That, that's the very first thing I do when I take on land is clean the ditches and check the drainage and get it as good as I can. And normally that sorts out a lot of those bad areas on our heavy soil up here. The other thing is to take a spade and have a little look at the soil and smell it and see if you've got worms in it and, and if it's um, healthy and it smells nice. Um, you know, it's no good going into a field that's as dead as a pancake and got no air in it and is sour. You know, you're not going to get a good result direct drilling. Um, so from a transitional point of view, you really need to go and inspect your field. Um, if, if the water's not draining away, why isn't it? As we said earlier, check that. Um, if your drainage is right, if you've taken a brilliant crop off a field, nine, ten tons or whatever is brilliant for your soil type, you pretty much can go straight into that field and drill it and get a very good result. Even with any of the direct drills, provided that they are the right drill for your soil type in that area. And when I go back to the 70s, the ADAS then produced um, maps where this drills work quite well. And I think our area here was the area which had a big red cross and it said, this drills will not work. And when I looked at it, I thought we've got to do something different. So that's where we came from with a strip tillage angle, which puts air and moisture, um, brings the moisture up and gets the crop away to a really, really good start. And uh, and uh, I think you know that's the difference between our drill and, and some of the others. I'm not saying the others are bad. I'm saying they'll work for some people, but not for all of the people and all of the land. There we go. Thank you very much for that. But don't forget, if you want to um, send us a question, you can. On your screen, uh, you will see uh, that you have... Um, a little box and you can type your question in there and you can get our experts to answer your question and if you put your name and where you're from that would be lovely as well uh, so please send some of those questions in if anything uh, uh, crops up in your mind that you want to ask uh, feel free to do that right so we've talked about resilience we've talked about we're talking about resilience and um, one question that's come in with and i'm going to put this one back to will first actually because it's probably it's something he's probably doing battle with some of his clients to try and calm them down a bit with grain prices so high shouldn't my main focus be on yield at all cost um will i mean presumably that's a, a thought that's been going through a lot of people's heads although obviously those grain prices have come back from the crazy highs they were uh, back in sort of May, June of this year? Um, I think yield can do an awful lot to cover a lot of sins here. Um, and obviously within reasonable parameters, I would always encourage somebody to push yield, as I'm sure anyone else on this, this panel would. But I think you have to understand the cost structure behind that, the associated risk with what you're doing, Um probably in an arable context, that's quite low. Um, but, yeah, yield will go a long way to cover a lot of sins. The cost of production work I referred to, the easiest way to lower your cost of production is typically to uh, increase your yield. You've got a dilution effect there, um, and someone pushing 10, 11, 12 tonnes of the hectare uh, is going to pretty much always have a lower cost of production than somebody down at six or seven on a you know an incredibly low input system not always i've seen figures at both ends of the scale you need to understand the figures uh, i think the other thing i would just add in yield um and the yield dilution effect uh the the carbon world that we're going into the carbon cost of growing crops again yield is absolutely fantastic at diluting the carbon cost of that crop as well within reasonable parameters understanding fuel and fertilizer being your two biggest carbon costs so yes push yield understand the cost behind it though 
Absolutely. And, and, and Tom, in terms of when you're trying to, when you're working with farmers in terms of developing their environmental side and trying to optimize the environmental output of their land, is there a point, have you started to find, a, is there a, a sort of a, if you will, a benchmark, a, a stress point at which the land is given to you to go and work your magic on and, and, and give us some consistent income versus what they were getting inconsistent income previously? Uh, yeah, I think that there is an element, you know, there is an element of that. But I suppose at the moment with us, um, you know, we've, we've given how new of a market this is, I suppose there's so many landowners with so many different motives coming to us. Um, in some cases, it has been that point. I think I think actually a lot of, for a lot of farmers we're speaking to, I think the tipping point has probably been a lack of certainty over forthcoming government funding, particularly. Um, and, you know, we know BPS is going and we, we've got an idea of what's coming down the line to replace that. But actually, we haven't got really any detail on this. Whereas, you know, whereas with with what we're offering, we're very upfront, you know, early on in the process about, you know, well, this is what we feel you could, you know, you could earn off of this Habitat Bank site through the rent and the management fees that we'll pay them to manage the site. Um, and I think, yeah, for people, they just it's the long term security. I think that's really attractive. Um, somebody I spoke to last week, you know, we were discussing about how, you know, SFI, or Sustainable Farming Incentive, is open for applications at the moment, but we still don't actually know yet what the government is offering in terms of payment rates and things like that. And they just said how, you know, how we how we expected to try and go into something where we just don't, we just don't know how it's going to look 12, 24, 36 months down the line, let alone years down the line. So I think, yeah, that, that peace of mind. Um, and the long-term kind of security is something that is that is really attracting farmers. Um, Tim, do you have to stop some of your customers chasing yield too hard and covering up the the the, the, the book of sins that that, that lies beneath it? Well, we're not we're not prescriptive about what anyone should be doing. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> but um, uh, we're very non-judgmental. But uh, obviously, what we're concerned about is uh, is you know in lending to someone is is there's a, there's a range of things, but affordability is in there, and a good indicator of ongoing affordability in terms of being able to to pay us back is is profitability so so we're we're much more interested i suppose you could say in 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 really pushing that what's the cost of production conversation so that actually you can show that you're making a good profit margin um and it's not all about the yield but maybe i'm just biased because i'm you know on grade three cotswell brash and i I can only dream of jeff's soils and and yields so uh, whatever i might try and throw at it so uh, maybe that's a, I have a diff- come at it from a different angle, but generally from a banking perspective, affordability and, and profitability and, and good cash flow management. Absolutely. Look, we're going to take a break. Uh, we'll be right back after this message from one of our other partners, Trinity Ag. Have you met Sandy, the new generation smart natural capital navigator from Trinity Ag Tech? Accredited to the highest standards, Sandy combines the most reliable analytics with the latest science and technology. Take control of your farm's natural capital and increase your profit and sustainability. Join farms of all sizes across all sectors using Sandy, the smart natural capital navigator. And we're back and you are indeed uh, listening to the Farmers Weekly Transition Podcast talking about stress testing your business. Marilyn Purchase. Ashmead Farming has sent a message. Uh, she's telling me off uh, because we haven't talked about beef and sheep systems enough. And, you know, as a beef farm myself, Marilyn, I was thinking exactly that. So, so it's a good point. Um, where we talk, we've talked about stress testing with regards general financial, with regards arable. Um, Will, a lot of your clients must, you know, have mixed enterprises as well as arable enterprises. So when you're on farm dealing with clients who have uh, mixed enterprises, when we talk about stress testing and, and resilience within those mixed farm businesses, I mean, presumably things like growing as much as your, your own feed as you can, uh, it's a, an obvious way to try and reduce your exposure to, to lumps and bumps going forward. My comments around cost of production are equally as um, relevant to a livestock enterprise as they are a, an arable enterprise or a horticultural enterprise, etc. Uh, I appreciate maybe not as easy to pull out those costs, but what can a beef and sheep farmer do to help with resilience? I think you're right, as as much as possible, homegrown feeds, um, contracts, both for purchases and sales, and lock in prices and understand where that cost matrix is, understand if there's a profit margin there to be made. 
um, at times when maybe that's harder um, within reason look at other measures to, to help or scale back and when when you know there's a profit you need to push for it um but yeah in terms of resilience what i'd be saying to to a livestock farm when i go to them it, it is grow as much as you can at home look at alternative income streams which is where tom would come in but actually the sfi for uh intensive grassland is probably the best of the bunch out there at the moment i'd certainly be saying to people look at that um we, we've still got a year in which we could be applying to countryside stewardship I have a lot of dairy guys that have moved away from maize and onto whole crop spring cereals um accepting that there's going to be a bit of a change in the the ration but there's an element of income guaranteed through the stewardship from that and maize longer term probably isn't helping their soils there's a whole range of things to be out there but it's have an open mind um look at, at how much you can ring fence things within home uh, and then for things that you are buying in what contract terms can you buy on compared to the sales and if you can link the two and guarantee a margin in the middle that's that's the holy grail and, and as you say it is all about data it is knowing exactly what you're doing it's knowing exactly what your animals are performing in exactly the same way it's knowing exactly how your wheat's growing and what it's going to yield um tim when we talk about the, the over the farm gate going out uh, i mean from your day-to-day working in the variety of farm businesses that you do work in do you see anything that gives more a more resilient uh marketplace for, for, for livestock producers out there yeah, well, actually, it's your point about looking outside the gate, actually, I think, which is quite interesting here. And and, and obviously, Will just alluded to mixed farming. Um, and I think uh, so. So, I, so I'm in a farmer cluster myself, um, which which involves um, a variety of enterprises uh, of, of different types. And actually, one of the great strengths that we've been able to do through that is 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 ensure that there's some form of essentially sort of you know circular economy going on between between ourselves. So that's the sort of thing where, you know, for example, I, I, I buy a lot of, you know, poultry litter from uh from the chicken farmer down the road um i also have i'm now mixed i you know graze i graze i graze sheep uh in in within my arable rotation so integrated livestock management which is a huge way of i address my cost of production actually um but uh so it's actually that i think there's a lot of this thing about looking around to actually how do you form partnerships if you're a livestock farmer with with your with your other arable farmers in your area who may you know be able to supply you or you may be able to supply services to them uh there's there's quite a good um lot of synergies that can be can be incentivized i think now um in where we are and i think you know necessity is the mother of all innovation right so looking at where we are now it's time to start having those conversations um either either formally or informally uh to get that going and, and those those businesses that are participating in those kinds of conversations and putting those kinds of arrangements in place um are sort of cutting out a lot of middlemen uh, and saving themselves quite a lot of money along the way yeah, it's it's acting as a collective, isn't it, and and uh, optimizing everyone's assets. Tom, you're uh, from an environment bank point of view. I mean, some livestock uh, farms and some not particularly sexy livestock pastures, although they might have some carbon and habitat value, uh, don't have a lot of output value. I mean, they're prime for you to come and do something with, aren't they? In terms of uh, into one of your schemes. Yeah, so, certainly. You know, a lot a lot of farmers we are to see um, will be, you know potentially you know mixed acreages or you know obviously down in the southwest plenty of livestock units as well um and yeah certainly for us where, where we can achieve enough uplift in biodiversity for improving those grasslands um we certainly take on sites like that and and also the you know one of the things that i think is really important for us to stress is i think for some people um within the farming community they still think of potentially having an environmental land use like that kind of you know completely prohibits agricultural use of that land or you know kind of integration between the two but of course for us one of the key management um actions with our habitat banks is actually that we would like them grazed um you know during throughout the year kind of low intensity grazing actually providing a lot of the habitat management um kind of objectives that we want is achieved through yet yeah, low density but predominantly cattle grazing but you know there are other options as well um so not only are you getting an income from the land for for an environmental purpose say such as biodiversity net gain but also 
you know, still providing some forage, although, you know, not the same kind of quality of forage as you may have had before, or, you know, not supporting the same head of cattle as it may have done before, but, you know, still adding some value to the agricultural business as well as the, you know, an alternative source of income. Yeah, and you've got the consistency of that uh, source of income coming in over the long term. Jeff, um, can I drill grass with my Clayton drill? (laughs) Um, Definitely, Hugh, you can. Um, We've got lots of grass being uh, reseeded and everything with the drill. No great hassle there. Um, It's very, very good. Um, Also, I have great admiration for livestock farmers, especially like you were saying earlier, out there in the cold, unfreezing water troughs and everything. And as an industry, we need our livestock industry in the UK um, because I grow a lot of wheat here in East Anglia and other crops, oats and all seed rape. And they need to be fed to animals here in the UK and converted into higher value um, produce. And I think as an industry, um, it's very simple. We all need just to look at our costs, what we're doing, and hopefully get a return. And we're always price takers, which is always a big issue. And I think, you know, there is opportunity with internet and marketing, but they've made it so difficult for livestock producers to actually slaughter their own animals and, and sell those in the open market over the internet. They, they seem to have closed that down with red tape. Um, as, as I remember from years ago. And you know, it would be really nice to see um, some livestock producers, if they wanted to diversify, um, perhaps offering more directly to the market and rather than relying on the supermarkets. And you know, last week, um, there was an excellent article in the Farmers Weekly, Food Prices, Why Farmers Get the Smallest Share. And it's well worth reading. The bread is negligible, the profit that we share that we get from bread as, as, as arable farmers. And for it's 0.03 of a percent profit that the livestock farmers get for beef burgers. It's a horrifying situation because, you know, going forward, we all need to survive. And, and what happens if they force us into an abyss um, to plant these areas up, we have no livestock, and perhaps we could get to the point of food security being a serious, serious issue. Uh, absolutely, it, it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's. It, it, I suppose it's it's incentivising people to do the right things to ensure the food security. Um, thank you, Jeff. Uh, we've had another question in, which just sort of goes back a bit when we started. We talked a bit about overdraft. Steve from Hampshire says, what would be a typical gearing ratio for an owner-occupied farm? Is the one number Tim Coates? Uh, no, because it depends where you start from, <laughs> <laughs> if you see what I mean. So if you've, if you've, if you've recently acquired uh, that farm and borrowed to do so, uh, you're going to be in a different different gearing position uh, than, than someone who's, who's been there, multi-generational, who, who may be carrying a different, different level of debt. So there, so there isn't necessarily one size fits all um, uh, at all. Um, I, think, I think the point is it's, it, the important thing is to make sure you actually know it uh, and, uh, and know how to manage it and that you're managing it to a level that, that is doing two things. One, back to uh, ensuring it's not too too high therefore you know in an unaffordable situation potentially um but also actually not carrying any debt may not may mean that you're not investing appropriately in something for the future uh which actually you know debt doesn't have to be an evil evil thing um it's it's about the appropriate use of it and actually it may be that you you know need some need some extra debt to 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 invest in you know some form of transition in your business um you know maybe maybe it's a new drill maybe it's something else but uh you know there'll be there'll be something that might might be able to help you in transition and make you more profitable and therefore affordable going forward i'm going to weave in seamlessly another question has just come in from graham sanders hello graham um, Graham wants to know. Uh, he's a banking. He's a, a, a financier, uh, banking person. Um, he's talking about stress testing. What would you, I mean? Where are we to with stress testing? Because you know, it used to be you know three and a half percent over base stress test um, when interest rates were like one percent. I mean, are you going in and stress testing loans at ten percent now? What, what's the deal? How do you do that in the current market? Uh, yeah, it's, it has it has increased from from previous levels. Um, I'm not, you know, it's uh, there's a, there's a, a lot of ways of cutting that particular question, um, but yeah, we're looking at you know the future path of interest rates that expected to do given what everyone believes about inflation today. 
right which is 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 uncertain like there's there's no certainty about where that's going to play out there's so many big you know geopolitical factors weighing in here um and therefore you know the future path of interest rates is also not certain now you know we currently think that interest rates are likely to uh peak within the next 18 months um but that doesn't but we're not expecting uh much of a taper off then so there'll be sort of new plateau new level of normal um but at the same time, 18 months ago, did we know we'd be on this path now? Not necessarily. We, in fact, we, did, we didn't expect it to be as high as this. Hence, we do have quite a large range on that, on that stress test. So, you know, we are, we are looking at interest rate on the interest rate stress test, you know, being you know, well above a 5% increase from here, uh, something that we, we would consider in affordability. Great. I'm going to move on to another question uh, from Rob Kerr. Thank you, Rob. Um, he says, is anyone concerned about the net zero push in Holland? 3,000 farms of approximately 9,000 currently being, or in the in the sites, the Dutch government policy currently being offered to, to, to be paid out to get off the land. Look, it leads us to a wider question about I suppose, you know, talking about nutrient neutrality, whether that's from a farming perspective, whether that's from a development in an area perspective and and, 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 and what's going on there. Um, Tom, in, in terms, I mean, are you starting to get into this nutrient neutrality This that we're starting to see, you know, the requirements for development to happen? And, and when you're talking to your customers, do you think there's a, it could be a, a, something that moves into farming here that we're more scrutinized in terms of where on how we use our nutrients and where our nutrients end up. Yeah. So, I mean, it certainly comes up in conversation a lot um, with, with landowners we're dealing with um, as well as internally, to be honest. Um, so yeah, we are, we are speaking to landowners that we are progressing sites with about the potential for, for some nutrient neutrality or nutrient offsetting projects. Uh, the big difficulty at the moment is, there's there's not 100% clarity on how all of these natural capitals can sit together effectively, the whole stacking element of it. Um, so, you know, whether you can stack, I mean, while there is a lot, but say whether, whether we can stack um, phosphates and or, and or nitrogen offsetting projects within a biodiversity net gain project. Um, and, you know, yes, certainly something we're looking at doing. I certainly think, yeah, it, it is something that farmers are going to have to look at more seriously, I suppose. Um, and well, not, I suppose, as, um, you know, we're seeing more and more um, the, these these problems are here to stay. And, you know, not not solely attributable, attributable to agriculture, but I think it's very important to show that we are we are doing our part um, to, you know, to try and mitigate this as well. So I certainly think um, I certainly think that there, you know, there, this is definitely a space to to be kind of showing an interest in at this at this stage um tim when you look at new bank you know new opportunities from a banking perspective backing projects i mean presumably now you have to start thinking about what's this environmental impact whether that's around um, uh, nutrient neutrality or, or managing nutrients and and, and, and effluence whatever an impact or ammonia whatever is that something you now consider as a banker? Absolutely. Do the people that lend you the money want to know where it's going? Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely um, is the short answer. So we both we take climate and nature risk into consideration in our credit risk decisioning. Um, and we have a variety of ways we do that. But actually, it's not just a risk factor. It is an opportunity. Um, you know, you've just mentioned neutral neutrality, and as, as as Tom has alluded to, there's a lot of uh, complications in that particular market to play out. But but where that market is starting to emerge, we, you're talking about three thousand pounds a credit being talked about, right? And uh, to give to give a sort of idea of that is that you can get quite a lot of units out of um, not very big area of you know five hectares of land use change can 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 deliver you sort of three hundred units potentially. Right, and suddenly three hundred times three thousand, you know, we're into, into serious numbers suddenly coming in as a as a diversification that you didn't even know you could do a few years ago. Right, it's basically so, a glorified reed bed. Uh, it could be something, but actually, there's I mean, it's, it's it it really there's a whole range range of different land use changes that, and it's and they they vary depending on nitrate or phosphate, which is the issue because in different parts of the country, different. Uh, so so in the Solent, for example, which is 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 forward on this, it's a nitrate issue. Uh, in the Somerset levels, it's a phosphate issue, and there's different prices attached to that issue. But you know, 74 uh, local planning authorities now are uh, have some form of nutrient neutrality requirement in place, uh, and that number is growing month on month. So this is something that's going to happen across the entire country eventually think about it the easy way to think about it is we're into nitro nitrate vulnerable vulnerable zones but you know on 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 speed right it's it's coming in a big way and um there is going to be uh it's, it's a bit of carrot or stick do you want to be 
going there and getting the carrots by actually you know thinking about your land use change uh where appropriate to to be in that market and actually seeing it as something you're bringing revenue in for or are we going to be regulated and actually that you know uh and told we can't do things uh and you know but there's a bit you know taking you back to your dutch question there's obviously been the row going on in wales about the whole country going into nbz um and and the issues around uh doing that and what the transition needs to be to support that um uh, and i think i think the two things that the, the simple simple thing i'd say that, that exists between those two two different cases is uh can people please ask the farmers for their opinion and input on how this should be done you know in in holland they haven't asked and that's why you've seen the situation there. It's not it's not being done with farmers, it's being done to them. And that's the sort of thing we can't really tolerate as farmers in this country. We shouldn't allow that to happen. No, like you say, it's 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 about getting with going going with the flow in a way and, and identifying those opportunities. And it's tricky to do because it's going to be a while till that market settles because any accommodation of nutrient uh, uh, harvesting, for example, and giving up land will impact your overall output. So until you know, it's like all these things, so much policy up in the air, trying to work out what's what is tricky. Another question has just come in, um, how to financially deal with increasingly dry spring crops? Jeff Clayton, how do you deal with increasingly dry springs? We certainly get them here in Surrey where we get no rain really from, well, February, end of February till July if we're lucky. You're, you're dead right there. This last two seasons have been rather remarkable. Um, we've had so small amount of rainfall, only about 150 mil, I believe, in the main growing period. And uh, it came in little drops of three and four millimetres, which landed on the surface and quickly disappeared again. Um, so it was, um, even though we had some rain, it was not one that would actually go into the ground. Um, it, it's really interesting because... It's all about conserving the moisture in the ground. And this is where we've learned over the last 20 years. Um, if we went straight in in the spring, drilled into the ground and, and squeezed the ground on this clay, the sun comes out, it bakes like a breeze block, like a brick, and all of those seeds are just perish and hang on the side wall. And, you know, we end up with about three, four tonnes a hectare of spring crop. Um, we've found a tremendous success in running a simple straw rake over and creating just two to three centimetres of tilth and placing the seed under that. That seems to act like an insulating blanket and captures the water from underneath and stops it bapping off from the top. Um, you only have to look at your tram lines. They always crack wide open. And in between the tram lines, with this small tilth and with interrow hoeing as well, we keep that tilth there and, and the crops grow really well. So much so that the previous year our spring oats did seven tonnes a hectare and our spring oats this year did 6.1. So, you know, I'm very pleased with that. And but I've learned over a lot of years, because I still do all the spraying and and some of the drilling and the harvesting myself. Um, so I've been watching these things from the spray seat, and that little bit of tilt makes a difference between success and failure. Um, added to that, you know, the soil health, when you have the straw left from the autumn, um, and it's unbelievable if you chop it and get onto the ground and worms feed on that straw. I mean, we can have in the uh, HDB worm things, a, a dig in the soil, we can find 50 worms in one of those samples. They said if we found five or 10, we'd be doing well. And so we're finding massive amounts of worms. We've always got the curlews and seagulls on those fields as well, harvesting those worms, disappointed me, but that's how life is. And they're, they're now all that chopped straw is actually fully disappeared and gone into the soil. Those wormholes have aerated it for the spring. And when we get the rain, the water will go down those. The anetic worms will take it down two metres deep, which will fill that reservoir underneath for our spring crops next year. So we're still getting some water leaving the soil and heavy storms through the drains. But, you know, it's all about filling that big battery underneath and then conserving it in there by keeping a small tilt on the top. Um, we found it tremendously successful here. 
Thank you, Jeff. And Will, dry springs. I mean, you've, you've, you actually have dry springs up in the north now. And uh, now, Will, I mean, we've had them down here in the south for a long time. What, what, what are you tending to do more of now with your clients? Um, yeah, we're not used to them in the north. It's uh, <laughs> a bit of a culture shock. But no, I think the first thing I do is echo what Jeff's saying um, soil health, soil structure. And, you know, I can have two growers either side of a hedge. One copes with uh, dry springs a lot better than the other. You obviously, there is a, a point where there's just far too little rain and, and no matter what people are doing, there's going to be some sort of crop failure. But I th- the first thing I do is is signpost people to um, our soil health experts because a day with them is so amazing in what you can actually unlock and learn about your soil and that's the asset that you're paying ten thousand pound plus an acre for and actually have very little knowledge of um comparatively to what there is to learn about soil so that would be my first starting point and then i think secondly the other thing is i'd say it's attitude to risk have some people that will t- uh, and typically, you know, owner-occupied, less geared farming businesses will have a different attitude to risk to a highly geared contract farming or, or tenanted business. And if someone wants to, to really remove that risk, then look at alternative crops. I have a man that um, basically said any high-risk crops, he's removing them for his rotation and he's going to grow AB15 legume fallow through stewardship as a risk management tool um for some people that's ludicrous because the the chances are they'll make more money but that that's each individual person's attitude to risk no that's cool uh, jamie is a student jamie holden he's a student at the royal agricultural university uh, formerly the Royal Agricultural College in my day. Not that I was there. I was where you went, Will. Um, if we, uh, He wants to know whether the, the panel, whether the panel's thoughts on whether the government could be doing more um, to combat the rise of input costs, mainly fertiliser, really, and stabilising fertiliser supply. Um, Tim Coates, do you think, I mean, is there anything government can do to try and stabilise that? It's a global market, isn't it? But it's key to resilience it's key to stress testing well if, yeah if you're the government doing your your resi- if you're the government doing your resilience testing if that that level well why have they let the, the only two fertilizer plants we had in the country go uh there's a whole bunch of potential answers to that question but that's they have they sort of temporarily intervened but didn't didn't feel like their heart was in it really um uh, and maybe maybe that's the you know they should have they should have they should and could still do more on that side of things i think it's very hard for them to actually you know pr- intervene on the price um they they they're not sufficiently in control as you say because we're in global markets um i think uh i think the government has has clearly picked its lane on strategy which is to incentivize a range of of different uh farming practices through the environmental land management scheme um even if they can't seem to make their own mind up about exactly where that's all going either but uh uh, that's that's the lane they seem to have picked rather than price intervention and um i think that's going to be a debate that rumbles on for for many years to come for some time i mean jamie says you know would they be better spent on on helping people diversify their their farm holdings income stream which sort of touches on that um tom i mean you touched on it in terms of still the confusion and the lack of clarity in terms of government policy when it comes to land management i mean pre- pre- presumably having some good solid uh, policy where hey we could make a 10-year plan that'd be novel wouldn't it uh, based on land management policy that would help would it not particularly with the job that you're trying to doing yeah certainly yeah i think um yeah i think for any business you know just having that ability to plan uh you know to plan in the long term makes a huge amount of difference you know especially in the agricultural world um and it is yeah it, at the moment, it is just difficult given, you know, we've had with the, with the uncertainty we've had um, with, you know, for the last few years, really, um, and the uncertainty that is still lingering, especially in the in terms of like in the policy arena and what might happen with, you know, current agricultural uh, or, you know, sorry, emerging agricultural legislation and environmental le- legislation, you know, what you know what is going to be the direction of travel for the next 10 15 years would be you know i think amazingly useful for for everyone on this on this webinar we, we hey we can but dream guys you never know uh, there may be some clarity come the new year ha ha steve uh from berkshire has sent just put a question in and it's 
I was thinking about this. I think we need to ask BNG, carbon credits, all the stuff we're talking about in terms of diversifying our alternative uh, incomes. How does that fit into tenant systems, Tom? Because it's all very well if you own your 1,000 acres or your 300 acres, but if you don't, how, where do, can you help tenant farmers? Certainly, it's you know it, it's something that we are we're trying to address, and you know we are very much considerate of um, you know tenant farmers needing to have access to these markets. Uh, we, we're doing a lot of work internally at the moment in terms of trying to design effectively, but or basically, yeah, get our model to work within a tenant farming situation. Um, and we're very hopeful that that's going to come forward very soon. Um, I think the the biggest piece of advice I would say at this point for any tenant farmer. Um, and I've seen this with some of the kind of the, the larger institutional landowners working with their tenants. But I think, you know, having open and honest and frank conversations with your with your landlord now or as early as possible um, are only going to kind of help you in the in the in the long run. And um, if you can have those conversations now and at least get the ideas rolling, hopefully, whether it's, you know, whether it's through us or uh, through various other environmental markets and, and companies. Um, yeah, I think hopefully, hopefully those kind of opportunities for tenants are going to come in the near future. It, it, uh, Tim Coates, it, it's tricky for tenants, isn't it? And, and for landlords, particularly looking at land that they own, that they've got rented out, thinking, well, who's going to own the offset here? I mean, that makes it it's, it's a tricky conversation to have because it doesn't talk about it in the tenancy agreement that might have been signed 30 years ago. It, well, absolutely. I mean, in, in the banking world, we talk about something called counterparty risk, right? To go back to uh, go back to the sort of stress testing idea, and a big thing to stress test is 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 who are all your counterparties? So, you know, we've talked a little bit about suppliers, and we've talked a little bit about people who are buying your output, depending on what market you're in. But you know, your, your, your landlord, if you are a tenant, uh, is 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 obviously a, a very very key relationship. Um, you know, I'm, I'm both both an owner occupier and a tenant, and you know, uh, I I probably didn't think that I'd be having quite as many conversations as I do with my landlord about these future opportunities. And I think the way I've always framed it is I'm the delivery partner. If you want access to these things, I'm the person right here who can make it happen. Um, so, you know, be forward thinking, come, you know, be the person with the idea. And then you're more likely to be to, to maintain that relationship rather than, again, it's about t- being proactive and not letting it happen to you, I think is the, is the point. Um, the, all of these opportunities can be accessed, um, but it's, it's, it's then going to come into a slightly different arrangement around, um, around uh, the, the, the share of the proceeds. So we call it that, you know, maybe that, that, that kind of simple, simple rent type arrangement is, is, is going to have to evolve and look a bit more like a contract farming profit share type arrangement into the future. Who knows? It, it's convincing your landlord that you're key to that uh, that future yeah. uh, benefit from the land, or that you're key to, to, to the whole mechanism. Um, Will, I mean, in terms of when you talk to your tenant clients, um, of which you know there will be many, I mean, it's harder to stress test those businesses to, to a certain degree because you know there's a lot of difference in terms of on-farm investment between tenant scenarios and owner-occupier scenarios. Yes, but I think there's a lot of things that we've discussed tonight that they can be doing. Um, and I'd go right back to the start in, in measure in order to manage. Um, and if you blindly bury your head in the sand and aren't open to change um, at all and don't take any measurements as to actually what your level of profitability are or is, then... You, fundamentally there's a good chance that you're going to struggle and i think the best businesses agriculture is um a business just like any other industry you um you make a plan um you actually take a measure measurements to see how you're going along with that plan and you have a, a review period of that um and you evolve whether you're a tenant farming business, whether you're uh, an owner-occupied business, whether you are in marketing and printing, you know, the best businesses look back um, and they evolve. I'm not saying people have to change, but they certainly need to be aware of how they may evolve um, if I suppose the numbers show that it's the right direction to go. So, yeah, sorry, I probably talked around that question rather than at it but it's plan measure of don't be scared to evolve 
Yeah, absolutely. It's like you say, it's it's knowing your numbers, it's knowing what's going on so you can actually, well, do what you want to do and, and know where to actually take your business uh, as opposed to uh, 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 stabbing in the dark effectively. Um, guys, that's been absolutely fantastic. I'm, I'm going to th- start to draw it to a close now because we're just coming up to our, just coming up to our deadline. We're going to thank our panel. Firstly, Will Foyle, uh, farm business consultant from Hutchinson's. Jeff Clayden is the CEO of Clayden Drills. Uh, Tom Mason, Senior Land Manager at the Environment Bank, and Tim Coates, Co-Founder and Chief Customer and Regulatory Officer at the Oxbury Bank. Panel, thank you so much for your input. It's been really insightful. Don't forget, there is loads of stuff going on within the whole Farmers Weekly Transition Package, whether it's pullouts in the magazine. There's a whole myriad of podcasts that are already out there as well. But look, thank you so much for taking part, for coming along and listening. Thank you very much for our panel and thank you to all our production staff as well. Thank you very much and we'll see you again soon.